0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with B.J. Miller. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org.
1: Okay. In that direction, would you say people in places of power? People in places of power. Good. I hear your voice coming back at you, but I think they can make a fix for that over there in in their studio.
2: Okay.
0: Hi, BJ. Can you hear me? I did.
2: Yeah. Krista? Hi.
0: Hi. It's good to meet you.
2: Hi. Nice meeting you.
0: My I'm so sorry about all this false starts with this. I <laughs> just really, it's, it's been really unusual that I canceled on Aspen and then I can't remember what happened that was completely immovable, but I'm really grateful that you were patient and stuck with this. Oh,
2: well, no need to apologize. It's always nice when something clears th- from the calendar. Oh, I know and what you mean. Nice it's to have a this gift to look forward to. Okay. Yeah, so well, good. I'm glad I
0: could give Thank you yourself. those little gifts. I also love that when people do it to me. Isn't it wonderful? It's a strange <laughs> world we live in. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: um, tell me, Chris, how are you? Do you see, Bj seems a little bit uh, soft. Yeah. Is that okay?
1: Hmm. I can boost him a little bit here.
2: BJ, want to talk a little more? Please? Sure. Uh, That's better. Know. Yeah. Yep. That's okay. good. Okay. Where are you, by the way, Krista? I'm I'm are in, in Minneapolis. I'm in yeah I'm in Minneapolis. Oh, cool. Um. Uh, me? Oh yeah, not far. I, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I live in Mill Valley, so it's not that far. Okay. Just uh, across the Golden Gate. The hard part was crossing town, but that wasn't too bad.
0: And you, are, do you know Courtney well? I mean, she's such a. I,
2: I do. Yeah. She, I'm very lucky to say that I do. Yeah. She and John have been really wonderful friends and a big help to me in many ways.
0: Yeah, they're just tremendous people. And she's so Damn. happy we're talking. And <laughs> I'm happy yeah. too. But, um,
1: yeah. By the way, I'm going to interrupt. This okay. is Howard, the engineer here in San mm-hmm. Francisco. BJ, you yeah. are normal and you're human. So that's two strikes against in terms of audio. Okay. You can't mess with your pen because it's going to make little... I've already wow. heard a couple of sounds okay. that it's doing. Okay. Paper rustle, pen clicking, things like that. Okay. You know, you want to feel natural, but on the other hand, it's it's sort of, you know, a little supernatural here. Yeah. So, you know.
2: Jeff, I'll put on my <laughs> tape.
3: Okay. Thanks.
0: Uh, yeah. It's the supernatural realm of radio. You know, I did hear you... Um, I heard I listened to your interview that you did with Michael Krasny and uh-huh. you said something about how the different the different experience of having listened to his show and then being in the studio. Um, yeah. Have you done much of this ISDN headphone? No. Yeah, because I, nope. I, I I think you might, it, It's it's interesting how intimate this also can be. And it's not. I mean, of course, it's not material and physical in the sense that we're sitting physically in the same room. But the human voice can carry so much of that. Mm-hmm. So it's just you lose a lot of those visual cues. Um, but anyway, we'll see. So I'm, I'm, I hope you'll enjoy it.
2: I'm sure. I'm sure yeah.
0: <laughs> it's intimate in its own way. Okay. So I'm getting the all clear from this end. Um, so let's okay. just dig in. Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Nope. Okay. So I'm I'm curious. Um, where did you grow up? And can, just didn't write this down.
2: Um, yeah. Well, I we moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, Chicago is my hometown. I was born in Chicago. Okay. But we quickly moved around. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty thoroughly suburban boy. Okay. We moved up to a little town called Winnetka. Yeah. But we lived in St. Louis. On two different occasions. Well, from Chicago, we moved to St. Louis. From St. Louis, we moved to Texas. From El Paso, Texas, to Roswell, New Mexico. Back to St. Louis. Back to suburban Chicago. By the time I was nine,
3: okay.
0: Was yeah. so was there a, a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? However, however, you would just define that.
2: Yeah, there was. Also, in a sort of typical American suburban way, it was part of the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So depending on where we lived, my parents. Um, it was not foisted in any way, but it was also not discouraged and it, it, For my own parents watching their rhythm with it, it depended on if they found a church who uh, who where they uh, enjoyed the sermons the preacher yeah, yeah and so but it was a part of my life I remember very I, there was a period where I was very serious about being uh christian I was raised episcopalian um, and there was there was a period where it really really I, I wondered if I should join uh the priesthood at some point i mm. felt I felt pretty drawn to it mm. um, yeah
0: and it, design um is such an important word for you, and such an important mm. notion that I feel runs through all your life and your work, and and you know, to me, there's a spiritual aspect to that, you know, expansively defined. And I'm just curious about where you trace the origins of that. Would you say that you always had a design sensibility, even if you didn't use that language?
2: I would say, yeah, yes. I would say, I always had an aesthetic sensibility. Uh, I think one of the great things that moving around the planet did for me at a young age was as my wiring was setting up, I was exposed to a bunch of different landscapes. Hmm. And people, too, but much more diversity of landscape is at least what what stuck with me. And um, that led to a different noticing changes in light and sunsets and
4: Hmm. terrain
2: at a young age that really deeply informed me. Um, and that later turned into interest into art. But I think at first was the natural world and, and, it's, and the world of the senses.
4: Yeah.
0: So um, I know you've told this story so many times. I mean, you, you, you grew up, as you say, all over. You went to Princeton. And yeah. then um, in your sophomore year, 3 a.m., I believe, um, you climbed, was it over a subway train?
2: No, it was a commuter train okay. above ground
3: okay
2: um, yeah, so in November sophomore year, we were just back from Thanksgiving holiday, and you know I was away from my friends for what four days, and I missed them we were all we were we had a quite a loving group of friends at that that at, at that stage, and we went out just to kind of hang out and uh, it wasn't a big night, it was a Monday night. I remember I had a Floppy disk in my shirt pocket because I needed to go to a, a lab and print a paper out. So it was not a particularly exceptional evening, but we were out on the town, had a few beers. We weren't going crazy, but decided to go get a sandwich at a place called the Wawa Market, which is a <laughs> New Jersey phenomenon, and opened 24 hours. And we were walking our way to the Wawa Market, which sits on the edge of campus. And in our path is this thing, this thing called the dinky. Mm -hmm. The dinky is a small commuter train that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction for all the commuters. And then that goes into New York and Philly. Um, So – and it's one where the the wires run overhead. Um, So I was just sitting there. It was not operating hours. It was just sitting there. We climbed it like you would climb a jungle gym.
3: Um,
2: Not at all thinking – I thought – it was not feeling like a very daring stunt at all, but I happened to uh, be the first one up, and when I stood up, I had a metal watch on, and the electricity arced to that watch entered the arm and blew down and out my feet.
0: eleven thousand uh, volts all right
2: yeah, 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 I, I giggle because yeah, I know you're well, giggling for a it's, it's
0: clearly, <laughs> clearly, you have worked your way through this memory. <laughs>
2: Well, it's twenty-five years old, and yeah. so much has flown from it. So much good has come from that experience. It's a, it's remarkable. I also don't want to be Pollyannish about it; that sends the wrong signal. But part yeah. of my chuckle yeah. is that the thing was called the Dinky. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> part of my pride is wrapped around losing three limbs to a thing called the Dinky. Yeah, but anyway.
0: Well, you know, and I have to say, I I the particular moment in my life in which I read your story is when I have one child off at college and the other. Heading off, Mm. and you Mm. know, and even as you're telling this story, I think what's so uh, you know, it's it'd be be horrific no no matter what, but that it's it's just this innocuous, playful moment, right? Yeah, after which everything changed. (laughs) Um, Yep. yeah, and I mean, 25 years later, you can see so much you can, I mean, that is it's a change that defines your life in wonderful ways, but um. Very dramatic.
2: Very dramatic. Yeah, that is true. But a version, a variation on a theme that so many of us have, little unexpected moments, things we think are innocuous, as you say, which aren't uh, the surprises of a daily life that aren't always of such dramatic consequence, yeah. but they're happening all the time, you know, on various levels. And I've kind of, that's been a, a way into some curiosity in a sense of a little bit of mystery around it. And... Which one thing? One of the fallout pieces of fallout that I love is this: this, this cognizance, this awareness of, I guess, fragility is the word. It's not well. It's not really fragile. It's just that these we turn on these dimes all day long, and yeah. where they all collectively lead us is, is is just kind of fascinating. So,
0: yeah. If what, when you, I mean, I know you were just a sophomore, but what did you think you were going to study and do? Did you have any sense of that?
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did. I mean, I was very, I was very happy to be at a liberal arts uh, college. You know, I, I was very, I was there to learn yeah. right from the start. I wasn't, I wasn't there as a means to some end besides learning and filling my brain and having some experiences. And I thank my parents and my sister for setting me up to delight in college in that way. And that very, just sort of open, expansive way. So it was not like I was on some vocational path, yeah. but uh, you know, a little better than a year in, I was. Tiananmen Square had happened the summer before I went, uh, before my freshman year, and that kind of turned me on to China. And I and I was in the spirit to learn about things about which I knew nothing. So studying the Far East was uh, was very exciting to me. So I was studying the Chinese language, and was interest, increasingly interested in Chinese aesthetic and Chinese art. So I thought I was heading for um, majoring in East Asian studies, Mm -hmm. and in fact, the second semester of my sophomore year, I was meant to be in Beijing. Really? Um, Yeah. Uh So. So you never,
0: or you didn't get there at least then. Hmm.
2: Nope. And
0: and and then it's so interesting that after you, I guess, had a period of recovery and returned to Princeton, you you studied art history. So mm-hmm. uh, tell me about that that decision. What went into
2: that? Yeah, it was like a lot of there was a sort of an intuitive piece of it for sure um and there was also an overlay of well, a very conscious overlay of hmm, sitting in the hospital bed, kind of trying to wrap your head around this this turn in your life and yeah to a degree trying to make sense of it, but mostly just trying to process it at, at all and reframe myself or really reframe my relationship to the world around me so that I could fit into it you know i I, I was a little i feel very blessed in that I grew up around disability you know my mom had polio and suffers from post polio syndrome yeah. pretty significantly, and so just the idea. I, I was I washed through the idea that our bodies are don't always serve us, and that hmm. this idea of a sort of a physical ideal was really off base. And I knew that in my bones, thanks to my family, thanks to my mom. And so having any kind
0: of idealism or ideas about the, perfect bodily perfection.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. I don't. Yeah, I mean, as a as a awkward teenager, and uh, I certainly had a relationship to the way I looked, and I really worried about the way I looked. Yeah. I worried about the the way I dressed, even from a young as a young child, back to this idea about design and aesthetics. I was very conscious of the material world and my relationship to it, sometimes in a very interesting or healthy way, and sometimes not so. But when I was in the hospital bed, I was, it, was, it was relatively easy for me to let go of some ideals of yeah, right. physical stature and beauty. So, um, so then I was sitting about, sitting there trying to figure out, well, what I, how do I, where's, the, where's my place in the world? How do I see myself? So I've lost these body parts. But I remember this question, like, does that make me less of a person? you know, n- n- by volume. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but not in any other way. I mean, I, you know, I was very aware of that. Again, my mom had taught me that. Uh, so I was, but I didn't really know how to frame it. So a long winded way of saying I, i I circled to art as this peculiar thing that humans do uh, as they process their reality or they make sense of their world or they affect their world or just reflect on it. Um, so I, art took on a new significance to me. I felt like I was now engaged in something of an artistic or a creative process, building my life now from this new kind of scratch, um, but also very aware, aware that, of the context around me and taking on very, a very serious stance around perspective making. You hmm. know, so, what could I do with myself? But also, how could I see the world around me so that I could fit into the world around me? And the hunch was that art was a vehicle. Learning about art would help me learn about how to do that. Would help me learn about perspective and how to see.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting phrase, perspective making. Because some, somewhere you, mm. you said, you know you you had the this loss of your limbs you you had um you lost both legs below the knee and one arm below the forearm and you said but you could no more reject this fact than reject your whole being so it's mm-hmm. it's almost like you also had to, it's also you, you had to you were getting a new sense of the perspective yourself your the your body's perspective in space and
3: yes and totally. and
0: but 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 um, I you know, and the analogy of art is wonderful. I just recently interviewed this anthropologist named Mary Catherine Bateson. Are you aware of her? She, I'm not. She's Margaret um. Mead's. She was the daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, mm.
3: mm-hmm. and
0: she her phrase is composing a life. Mm. Um. Which is very you know I hear echoes of that with what you 're saying and and so, mm. and you know as you 're saying you had you, you know you had a you had a do, reconfigured physical self, but you were you were composing a whole a whole right your life as a whole, yeah yourself that, as a whole that,
2: that language resonates with me, I like that very much, mm. uh, the word composing, and I like its overlay with music, which has yeah. always been important for me, but yeah, and seeing it as a creative enterprise. As well as an adaptive one um, was is was really was very rich and and it was really like an excuse i wasn 't I was sort of a melancholy child and a little bit brooding you know it 's not like and i and i was a little bit at odds with my ex my internal world was a little bit at odds with my external world with the way I presented to the world mm-hmm. and i 'm sure many of us would say that, but this radical change to my body really in a way, offered this great excuse to refashion my perspective, refashion and compose my sense of self. And I had, I think in a way, I know in a way I'd been longing to do that, but never really felt, uh, I wasn't clear how to do it, wasn't clear if that was a decadent pursuit. Um, So anyway, it was a nice, big, swift kick in the pants and excuse to change how I was seeing the world. Yeah,
0: but you know, and it's so beautiful, and I, it's clearly you live this. But I, I, I have to wonder, like, what it, you know, what did it take for you and to come to that, especially at that age, where you're so, where anyone's identity is just, just coming into being and mm. so f- fragile in a way. I mean, testing itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, was there must have been. That must have been a process.
2: Um, it to- sure was.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, it sure was. I'm sorry uh, to cut you off.
0: No, no. I, yeah, I just um,
2: – And I actually really appreciate you mentioning that because sometimes I hear myself talk. And, of course, it's funny how we remember things. And my mind wants to go to the beautiful side, the creative yeah. side. Um, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm keen – and part of it's born of a, of a gratitude – the way life has played out and I want to acknowledge all the good in part from gratitude but it's almost a disservice in a longer conversation uh, because it took a lot to get there and I don't and and sometimes I hear myself talk when I speak with others who are going through some hardship and certainly the message isn't like well just change your perspective in a couple minutes you'll see the world different everything's great you know quit complaining so it really yeah I mean there's a ton I mean buckets of physical pain and this reworking, I mean, as if, you know, late adolescence isn't hard enough, yeah. you know, you're, and trying to find your way in the world as, a, as something of an adult. I mean, that's plenty hard. So all that was going on and it really took years and a lot of what we're talking about now is in, is in retrospect. But I also take a little credit. A lot of this was also was designed from the start. This is what was what I was trying to do. Hmm. And it helped that I had this very heady background of a place like Princeton where you can experiment with your mind, where it's encouraged. So there was a lot that went into it. And I had incredible f- support from family and friends. But this took years. This was a pro- process that took years and I would say, of course, is still ongoing.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm just—I'm curious if, like, how how many years would you say? I mean, so just—I'll tell you, you know, one thing I'm thinking is how we, you know, I've—I we've done some programming on depression, and I and I, you know, have an experience in in my past of you know, it was serious depression, and and you put something like that out there about coming out the other side, and how. You know, men, many people—not everyone—who've gone through this can say that it's—you know—there's a spiritual catharsis. You know, this this changes okay. you, and and it changes you in ways that that one day, far in the future, you are grateful for. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't ever want somebody to be listening and feel like, in the midst of that, <laughs> it's not it's not mm. okay for them not to feel grateful. I mean, how long do you think it was mm. before you could use a word like gratitude about this accident?
2: Mm. It took years, you know, in fact, and I think about it, I had so some extremely dear friends, Tommy, Jonathan, Pete, Alex, and many others who really helped me in so many ways and gave of themselves and sacrificed, you know, the, the huge chunks of their college experience to help me get through. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation with Pete in particular. And I just couldn't get myself to say the words. I couldn't get myself to an honest gratitude. So I wasn't really thanking him or anybody else. I wasn't. I, I was just sort of overwhelmed. I was just in an overwhelmed state much of the time. And a quick aside, I mean, it built my it built out my capacity to get through the day while still feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was actually a. Use, very useful but right. to this point about gratitude it took years and i actually had to talk with pete years later about it and how much i had unnecessarily hurt him uh by not just coming out with a simple thank you but i just couldn't get there i couldn't get there in an honest way um so it took a long long time and i do think part of the if the all of this is a little oversimplified of course but if to get to that um Pot of gold, and through a process like this, you do really need to actually do the suffering. <laughs> you, know, you can't leapfrog. To right. It. Well, you do need right. to scrape the barrel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Which that I is did. the that's the crucible, right? It's what yeah. yields.
2: Yeah. Hmm. That's right.
0: There's a there's a wonderful line, and I believe it's your line. Maybe you're quoting someone. Um, I, I, I think you said it in your TED talk. It 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 comes up on the Zen Hospice Project website. Um, mm. Let death be what takes us, not lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. Those are those are your words. They are. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's it's a stunning, wonderful sentence. So, talk about how you came to that and what that means for you, what that holds for you.
2: Well, it's very much like along the lines of what we're talking. Uh, you know that there 's a big difference between the things that happen to you that are forces larger than you um, and it 's one thing i can I can yield to mother nature I mean I can yield to eleven thousand volts that 's a very different prospect than is shutting down your imagination or rolling over altogether or losing yourself altogether so there 's a way there 's a, a needle to be threaded here of both acknowledging these forces much larger than ourselves and, and, and a, for me bowing before them. I mean mm-hmm. there's a there's an allegiance in a way to these things that are much larger and at the same time any sort of proportionality and right sizing in that math also means it doesn't mean you're nothing. You may be a speck of sand in time but a speck of sand is something. You may be a drop in the bucket but that bucket would be different without your drop in it. So there's a proportionality, uh, a challenge to our sense of proportionality in all this. Which, uh, and I've loved that theme. I, I that that word proportionality comes up for me a lot. Does it say someone yeah. Well, you know how we we have this we have this capacity as human beings to change ourselves and change things around us, and if you're not careful, that capacity and then expectations that flow from it can run away with you. And all of a sudden you feel like, gosh, if I, didn't, if I don't change the world today, you know, I've failed. You know, or if I don't cure cancer tomorrow, I've failed. Or if I don't beat death, I've, you know, f- yeah. <laughs> trying to find... The enough gumption and wherewithal to respond and to try to do things while not being so overblown in your expectations that you feel bad for not changing something that's unchangeable. So there's, there's – uh, and for me, there's that, – that, that's a really tricky and dynamic equation that's changing all the time
0: and that you know that particular form of suffering i mean let's call it that is kind of it's a that that challenge of proportionality is a is a burden of people who are privileged in a way right mm-hmm. to 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 even have that mm-hmm. aspiration or or that sense handed to you that you have so much that you should be able to change the world or or mm-hmm. or or defeat whatever whatever uh obstacles are put in front of you mm-hmm. um,
2: it's true mm. and i you know and even at so much of our conversation i mean think about my i did you know it's so funny I watched. When people try to wrap their head around it, am, am I, when I, when I talk to them, am I, I, BJ, am I like, the least lucky person in the world or the most lucky person <laughs> in the world? And I, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm a little of both, yeah. as I'm sure many of us are. Most of us are to some yeah. degree. Depends who you're comparing yourself to, et cetera. But yeah, um, for sure, just think about my backdrop. Again, I was not, you know, think about my education um and whatever personality threads and through lines there have been that I've inherited all the exposure I had the safe exposure I had to trauma but not too much trauma you know difficulty but not too much difficulty all you know that that yeah. is there's a there is a ton for which I'm very I feel very lucky and a lot of the work I'm doing rests on a platform that was created from that good fortune too and even my misfortune uh, there's there's been enough support around me to turn that into good fortune. So you're right. There's as much of what we're talking about here, which in uh, the sense of proportionality and changing anything, is a, is, it's a very privileged position to be speaking from. And I would also add, Krista, I think it's also true, although I want to be careful that I'm not speaking for people whose situations I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But there is something about just getting through the day. I mean, being a human being, I don't care what your circumstances are. I mean, some of the most miserable people I know are by some measure the luckiest. Uh, I, I think being a human being is just in, is is inherently difficult. Uh, and so getting through the day is a sort of a creative process and a proportional process. A process of proportioning yourself. Um, so, anyway, there's a lot to say about that, but I don't think it's all about privilege.
0: No, no, I, I don't either. I, I actually think there's a subtler point which you just you just got at. I mean, I was listening to an interview you did with um, at the New School with, um, mm. mm-hmm. and you you talked about you said something really important. I think that you you talked a little. You said a minute ago that you were a melancholy child. Um, mm-hmm. You said there was some. I, and I don't think you used the word relief, but there was something that you said that you had you had always um, there'd been kind of a disconnect for you between, um, in, between your inner life and what you maybe thought you should be in the world. And I think that's true. As you say, that's a human characteristic and it comes with whatever conditions or circumstances we have. You said that yeah. when you had this accident and this trauma and this physical suffering that you finally had some suffering other people could see. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. Um Yeah. Right? So so that it's not to say that it's about privilege is also to come to the larger point that we all carry around these struggles and as you say, getting through the day is a human challenge.
2: Amen. Yeah, I was thinking about that driving over here actually, Krista. The um sure my injuries as we've talked, have done a lot of done wondrous things for me internally and all sorts of good stuff. But, you know, in a lot of ways, if anyone, if you talk to friends of mine from childhood, they would probably describe that I'm relatively the same person, mm-hmm. you know, that would, it's not like it was this huge left turn. Um, but what part of the difference in my experience of being alive has a lot to do with how the world responds to me. And the fact that I have these very obvious disabilities yeah. means that people treat me differently, so that 's a huge piece of this equation and that uh, and a very interesting one, and one that 's out of my control, um, and especially in my world and role in morale and medicine, I find it a very useful uh, uh, that my body and its obvious suffering is is very useful it it's a, it's a means of building trust with people who are also suffering from their body failing in one way or another so uh it is interesting to note how much of this transformation that we're talking about a isn't really much of a transformation and b has yeah. to do with people outside of myself more than inside of myself
0: but but the transformation that you were kind of compelled to I mean as much as we all carry whatever our suffering is, and it has infinite variety, um, we are taught to hide it right and to hold mm-hmm. on to it and mm-hmm. then of course, illness is this thing that you know brings it onto the surface so so but what but what you were compelled to do is let it is for it to be seen
3: mm-hmm.
0: and that's a huge move, and I yeah. guess and that's a move. I, I I wonder if you would say that's that's a huge move that you know now you work in hospice and that's this unavoidable move that people have to make. Um, yeah. In in un, in accepting that they are dying.
2: Yeah. Yep. I will. Uh, you know, trying to speaking of proportionality, trying to find for my own sense of confidence. I often wonder what 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 can I take credit for (laughs) this stuff, and one of those one of those decisions one of the is 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 to you know come out of the closet in a way uh, as as a disabled person, and I think about this idea of normalcy a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I like so I I and many many others before me have been agents of normalizing disability, and that's really potent. And I also think there's a second half to that equation that we need – that doesn't mean that we – Fit these other things into uh, our idea of normal. it means we expand our idea of normal okay and uh, you know I think that, no, that life's weird life's hard, life's <laughs> weird humans are weird and i I worry sometimes that we exist in such a narrow bandwidth of of accepted behaviors and, and thoughts that we really clip off so much of the strange beauty that can be part of the human experience and so but i I, back to your point i mean i will take a little credit for i remember i remember i was about oh two or three or four years into my odyssey in these shoes and the norm like for for lower limb prostheses the norm was that you put these flesh colored foam covers over your legs so that they looked more natural and they had the shape of a leg And I remember I was studying architecture at Princeton and modern architecture in particular and about Louis Sullivan and others pulling the applique off the buildings and delighting in the structure itself. Uh, And that was just such a mind blower for me. And so I pulled the covers off my legs and started to force myself and then – to genuinely delight in this weird structure that now was my legs. Mm. I love these legs. These legs aren't some cheap imitation of what I lost. These are wholly new things. These are different things that deserve their own space and credit. I love them, and, it's, and I'm interested in how they look. So that was very therapeutic for me, and I will take a little credit for whatever courage that day helped me do that. Yeah. And similarly for my arm, I have a lot of skin grafting on my arm and I wore a sock over it for years. At first it was like this white uh, sort of medical stocking. And then I got a little creative and started wearing like like Paisley or Argyle socks on the arm to have a little bit of style <laughs> around okay. it. And then, and then maybe again on the same period, maybe five years in, I just pulled the sock off one morning. I didn't feel the need to cover it up anymore. And and that was just a spontaneous moment that it, and subconsciously I think I've been working towards that for years. And one day I just didn't need it anymore. Um, so anyway, mm, those mm, moments, yeah. there, was some, there was some courage in those moments. Wonderful. There was moments of just willing myself out into a public view that I remember was very awkward and uncomfortable. But I knew it was a good, and, good thing for me to do and, and perhaps a good thing for others around me to see.
0: You know, I'd love to. I've seen pictures of your of your prosthetic legs, and um, I mean, you know, these these this image is becoming as these things are more out there and available to people. Mm. It's you know, it is becoming part of our imagination about the human body. I think
1: mm. Inter-
0: so yeah. interestingly. But I'd love to hear how you would describe your your legs. You know, tell me what you mm. see when you look at your legs. That beauty that you see.
2: Mm. Well, there's the the beauty of a carbon fiber weave—you know, carbon, our basic organic substrate—but yeah. here it is in this, in this, in these sheets of woven material that are so strong, so light, such a nod to both mother nature and a human uh, ingenuity for harnessing it. So, we've got this beautiful black carbon weave. You know, if you buy your sports car, you'll pay extra to have a carbon fiber door or panel or mm-hmm. some. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an acknowledged aesthetic. Um So first, I notice the color. then I notice the sculptural quality of of the of the piece what 's called the socket, and the socket is what goes around my stump the, the what 's left of my fleshy leg mm-hmm. and that is sculpted to my leg. so it is a piece of sculpture this is a, This is where the craft comes in, mm. and it has sculptural qualities to it there It reveals the shape of my stump, and then below that you 've got this. I've had various feet over the years, and but they're all – they have these very – some of them have these very narrow, skinny little ankles. It almost has a – it's a version of what I feel like when I look at a horse. <laughs> mm. Incredible power, those beautiful thighs on these teeny, teeny, tiny little ankles. <laughs> and it's similar with – not quite that dramatic, but it's a little similar with prosthetic feet um, because in a way – the, we are able to construct things which are stronger than bone, and don't need all the support structures. So uh, it is a so that's what I see when I look at my legs. The piece that has bummed me out for years now is the is it's what's left to chance at the level of the shoe, and shut me up here, Krista, because I could go no on no for it's this. great I love it keep going. <laughs> well, the shoe is like yeah. you've got this incredibly engineered, crafted leg that I was just describing. Yeah. And then, at the final moment where that leg is interfacing with the ground with Mother Earth, with the thing that it's meant to affect, it's left to chance there's this this thing called the foot shell, which is is is, is this pink colored very often i'll have these sort of faux toes on it um, <laughs> rubber thing that goes over your prosthetic foot so that it will take on the shape of a quote-unquote normal foot so that you can wear normal shoes. Mm. And as we've been talking, like, I don't want to pass. I want to, you know, that (laughs) – darn it. Like, why this final element is left uh, to this sort of compromised design state has always bothered me greatly. And the fact of it is there's really – there's no one has built shoes for prosthetic feet before. Um, most people would say they want to wear their normal shoes, want to go shoe shopping with their friends mm. per se, et cetera. But I don't know. That's, that's not been challenged. That's just conventional wisdom. A friend of mine and I, Alyssa Trieger and I, she and I started a little shoe company called Ground Control. <laughs> and it's had to go on hold because of all the other things going on in life. But someday I hope that we can circle back to it to – construct shoes specifically for prosthetic feet because I don't have all those little bones that you guys have. I don't it doesn't need <laughs> right. to have that silly shape. Right. It doesn't you know, it can look totally different. Uh, that's really but fun. we have not yeah. we haven't gotten there yet.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, great. Um was do you think that you went into medicine because of your accident because of mm. what happened to you physically?
2: I mean, oh, totally. You
0: studied art yeah. history, but then, you, but then you became a doctor.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh.
2: So, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, back to the liberal arts experience. And, and, and one of the great benefits to my injuries that I immediately appreciated was that it forced me to just get – just to focus on the day. I had absorbed a lot from sort of uh high powered suburbia that you have to everything was a means to an end goal oriented you're working towards you know you're yeah. struggling now to work towards some better state down the road and this accident just really changed that that daily experience up so i was just really back to a much more get through the day kind of mode and so In a a healthy way. But it also meant, especially studying something like art history, uh, when graduation day rolled around, I wasn't (laughs) – I didn't know what the heck I was going to do to make a living and I really hadn't thought about it. Um, So anyway, I worked in arts advocacy organization in Chicago and interned at the Art Institute of Chicago's um, archives. And that was wonderful. But that was really I, – I knew I wasn't – I loved art too much in a way or had a relationship with it in a way that didn't lend itself to a career. So I knew I wasn't going to do that work uh, per se as a job. But I didn't know what I was going to do. And the basic impulse was that I wanted to make good on my high-powered education, put that Princeton education to some use. And I knew I wanted to use my experiences as a patient – You know, I think there's a lot in the disability world. A lot of us get praised for overcoming our disability. Well, you know, there's a problem with that. Um, I don't – disability is part of me now. I'm not overcoming myself. Um, I want to use it. I want to delight in it just like we were talking about the prosthetic shoes. There's a lot to play with here. Um, So I was very clear that that's the – that I wanted to work with this experience in some way, indirectly or otherwise. And so medicine lighted lit up as a potential path where I could do those things, use my education, work with other people, be of some service and use my experiences in a, in in some fruitful way. So that was the impulse. Uh, and I I didn't I had never taken any pre-meds. I didn't, you know, I didn't know if I could physically get through medical training and yeah. I didn't know if I could intellectually either. So I said, well, I'll start taking the the pre-med classes and I'll just get on this horse. And my promise to myself was, I will, I, I knew at that point I didn't want to sac- I, The Life was too precious to sacrifice it towards something you didn't love. So if, yeah, I promised myself if, I, if it was just too hard, I wouldn't do it. This was not a martyr's uh, path. And I also promised myself if something else came along that I realized I'd rather do, that I would do it. So those were my stipulations for myself. And I just got on the horse and Kind of kept walking and got into medical school at UCSF, which was a wonderful place in so many ways, and that worked out well. And one thing led to another, and we can talk in more detail about that. But that's how I got on the medicine path.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's it seems that you, your, your sister committed suicide. I get was it mm-hmm. when you, as you were just finishing medical school,
3: and yep. you've, you've yeah, said that that
0: that that affected your your turn into. Hospice. But t- tell me about that. Was it because of that experience of death that you, that you wanted to be attentive to
4: that?
2: Well, you know, I, and I appreciate that question because I've, I've, I've had to think about that. It was a timing issue.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so Lisa died uh, deep. It was uh, December of 2000, and I was a senior. It was my final year of medical school. But I was taking a semester off because I had to get some surgery on my legs. So I was
4: okay.
2: in a. I was at. My parents were in Milwaukee at the time, so I was at home on the couch in Milwaukee. And so pondering my own disillusionment with medicine, I think most of us go into medical and into healthcare with some sort of idealistic bent that. Uh, has to be checked by the reality of practicing medicine
4: Uh,
2: and that's a really clunky uh, reconciliation process for so many of us it's not boy is it tough I mean we can talk about that more but um, anyway I was on the couch thinking do I really want to be do I really want to keep going with medicine Um, I was realizing I had just assumed the whole course through medical school that I was going to go into what's called physical medicine and rehabilitation Physiatry is the other name for it. Mm. You know, basically rehab medicine. So to help people who felt...
0: also had traumatic, um, yeah. Yeah. Ex- yeah, events and yeah, exactly. Disabilities. Because
2: the, the, I, I didn't I wasn't in love with medical science per se. That's not what I was mm-hmm. why, what I was doing. I was there to be of some use, and it seemed like well, go into rehab medicine that'll be the, the best use for you. So I just assumed that all through medical train, all through medical school, anyway. Sitting on that couch, um, I became aware that I did not really love rehab medicine, the mechanics of it. Um, I was much more interested in the transformation that happens with medicine mm. rather than trying to get back to where you were before some traumatic event. Um, so I was having my own falling out of love with medicine um, and disillusionment phase. And then Lisa's death came along. And, of course, that was – that shook the boat in all sorts of ways. Mm. Um, it really, I would say her death just made me more less enchanted with the idea of me being anything approaching a healer or anything like that so i was i was her death just made it more clear that I should get out of medicine hmm. but it was my dean at u c s f who said, no, no, just you know if you're going to get out of out of medicine, at least do your internship year internship year is your first year residency okay. and, you know, and it, you so you graduate medical school, you get your M.D., but you have to do an internship if you want to practice medicine at all. You have to do at least one postdoc year. So Dean Papadakis said, you know, do that internship. It's a better – and then you can put it down. If you ever want to get back in medicine, it's a much better place to stop. So I said, okay. I said I moved from San Francisco back to Milwaukee. Um, I had gone off to boarding school at a young age and, you know, so I, it was time to re as a threesome, as a family with Lisa's death. So mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, I went back to Milwaukee, did my internship there at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I was just trying to get through the year, you know. Um, but during that year, I did a rotation in what was called palliative care. And while UCSF had palliative care, I wasn't really paying attention much to med school to anything that didn't directly affect my course towards rehab medicine. All right. But during that internship year, uh, the backdrop of my family reconstituting itself, recomposing itself, uh, my own realizations around transformation, capacity and illness, uh, et cetera, made me really uh, tender and primed to receive palliative care in a new way, in a Mm. different way.
4: Mm.
2: And that rotation just, just turned me on almost instantaneously so yeah that that was how I got to palliative so
0: care. many of the ways so many of the, the ways you talk about and seem to think about and just approach um what you do palliative care hospice is also completely interwoven with this design sensibility that mm-hmm. right that we've been talking about all the way through i mean and mm-hmm. this aesthetics you know and, and the language you use and the images you use i mean and and I just you know some you know for example, you say our shared mortality is a source of great beauty
2: mm-hmm. what
0: do you mean when you say that?
2: Well, you know, the fact that we all end up in—that we that we have these bookends of birth and death, and in between, it feels like a guitar solo, you know, like in between, all sorts of crazy things can happen. But the, the song begins and the song ends, at least for this bodily life. And the fact that we share that 100% of us across time and space, across cultures, that all of us share that version of fate— is compelling to me. I think we spend a lot of time in the zones of contrast, comparing ourselves to or really contrasting ourselves mm. with others. Mm-hmm. Black versus white, you know, skinny versus fat or whatever. We we see ourselves in uh, in opposition or at least in difference from those around us so much of the time. When in fact, if you step back, I, mean, I think we share probably you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent you know of an experience in in life, um, in some way, or we see variations on themes. Um, so, kind of finding a purchase, a toehold in what we share and all that we share, opens me up in a way that I feel that that feels beautiful. That is that is. Um, that makes me love people more, not less. That makes me more open to people, not less. It makes me more open to myself, not less. So it's it's an, it's an observation of what when I start thinking about this common fate, like looking within myself. What does it do to me? Well, that's what it does to me. And hmm. for that, I'm, uh, that that seems that seems very good.
3: Yeah,
0: and you know. Quality of life is kind of is an overused phrase, which is not to say that it doesn't mm-hmm. have meaning, but it's an overused phrase. But, you know, I, I feel like, you, you, you know, when you paraphrase it in this way, you talk about that hospice is about living fully into our last breath, mm. living fully. Um, <clears throat> um, and the fact that this, you know, hospice, which is just and palliative care, which are so new, um, that, that hospitals were never designed to, to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. to help people live fully into their last breath. I mean, you even pointed out that the word anesthetic is literally the opposite of aesthetic, (laughs) that hospitals assault the senses. Yeah. Uh, So interesting when you apply that lens to thinking about these things.
2: Oh, yeah. It really has been a turn-on for me over time, just an awakening as I see, as I apply my own personal interest to my professional ones and see the and your
0: experience right I mean you spent all that time in a hospital
2: yeah 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 and uh you know you start so where's the problem I think I mean you say you know we it's well it's easy for me to say that the healthcare system is broken I see it there's it's filled with problems and at the same time I look around you know I remember going to starting medical school and I was had a part of my idealism was, oh, I'm not going to be one of those jerky, arrogant doctors. I'm going to be this kind of. You know, I had this I, I this idea that medicine. I don't know. I had all sorts of unchecked ideas. But <laughs> the bottom line, <laughs> the bottom line, we all do. Was, we all do at that yeah, age. <laughs> yes, that's what you should sure do. But it, you know, so there was the realization that. Hmm. Actually, I've met a lot of my colleagues now, and even the ones that are considered curmudgeons or bad bedside manner, I see them in their private moments of anguish about their patient's experience or the ones that got away or whatever it may be. And you start really – if you're being honest, you see that medicine, healthcare, is filled with really well-intended people, really kind people. Outrageously devoted, diligent people. I mean, the training is insane, you know. Yeah. So, and yet, the system kind of stinks. And yet, the experience is brutal. And the language around trauma is is very real. I mean, there's imposed trauma that happens in healthcare, not just the trauma of the mm. illness. Yeah. So, trying to find well, where do I? What's where, <laughs> where? Okay, where do I put the blame then? Who's the bad guy in this? Where's the problem? well and that's when i f- f- sort of keep backing up backing up pulling out on the lens and you finally see that the dang system wasn't designed well
3: it's a design problem was,
2: <laughs> it's a design problem yeah. you know and i'm sure there are other lenses to apply to it but it is a design problem and one of the things i love about that is well a well let's redesign it that that makes it that makes there's a way forward a b there's a way a path for forgiveness so You know, it's not that my oncology people are evil for not spending enough time discussing prognosis or uh, having real heart-to-heart conversations with their patients about how they want to die. What can you do in a 15-minute patient encounter, Mm -hmm. you know, or et cetera? So you start seeing these structural problems and you see that – and like I say, there's a way forward and there's a means to forgiveness in that. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes,
0: it does. You mean you also say, yeah. you know, that the larger design is that medicine was designed with disease at its center and not people,
2: yeah. not yeah. life the in fact. Dev- um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the design flaw right there. Um, and part and parcel of that is this sort of uh, seductive thinking of a, you know post-technology revolution, post-mid-19th century where, you know – It was tempting, very tempting to apply the scientific method and to see disease as a problem. And if we just get better and try harder to fix the problem, then we'll restore life as this perfect uh, thing. And so if we just try a little harder, work a little longer, we're going to solve all these problems and reveal that life is itself a a flawless endeavor. (laughs) And I think we're now at this reckoning where, ooh, well, sure, penicillin came along or whatever, name your innovation. And we extended life here and there, but we just uncovered a new disease. And the amount of harm we've done with our fixes is is undeniable. So there's this moment now in time, and and I think it goes nicely with the focus from a disease-centric model to a person-centric model, that actually turns out that, you know, no matter what we do, at least so far, that mortality ultimately will have – it's due <laughs> right. that life, you right. know?
0: And that it's not a failure, that doctors and aren't failing when people die,
2: right? Exactly. <laughs> but that is a normal, native, natural, even welcome human phenomenon, mm-hmm. not to be fixed.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's a lot to say about that. Uh, but yeah, so right. So this idea of failure, um, boy, do my colleagues on the provider side suffer for feeling a failure. Mm. Uh, and feeling failure before something that they could never be expected to change, with a more informed point of view. So, yeah,
4: does
2: that, yeah that's this is where the, the uh, this is these are we're sort of laying out the design flaws,
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and I do think those are all. We're in a process. Uh, we're in a corrective process within healthcare.
0: And you, um, you are now at the Zen Hospice Project, um, mm-hmm. and but you're you're not you're not Buddhist, correct? You're not a practicing right. Buddhist, yeah. That's right. Um and yet I sense that there's so much in the um approach uh that is very uh that makes sense to you that 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 also makes sense with the way you've approached um you know trauma and disability and medicine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I you know I don't I don't know if irony is the right word, but being a, you know, not someone who identifies per se with Buddhism or doesn't have a Buddhist practice trying to to run an organization, which really did grow out of the San Francisco Zen Center and has Buddhism in its, in its root, in its taproot. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important. It's not um, – I think it still works because Buddhism – I don't think I as a non-Jew could run a Jewish hospice. I think that would be problematic. Hmm. Similarly, um, any faith per se, but Buddhism isn't a faith; it's an approach. It's a way of seeing. And while it's not entirely my way of seeing, I'm not. Um, I'm not breaking any rules therein by promoting it. Um, I don't, you know. So, I, for me personally, it is. There, there's a. There are. There's a, a lot of overlap. This idea that we were talking a little bit a moment ago, that suffering is normal, that dying is normal. You know, Buddhism starts from there. Yeah, suffering is right. being a part of life. So that, right. that's a huge piece of so And that
0: everything here. is ephemeral.
2: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Second piece, exactly, that mm-hmm. everything is ephemeral. Right. Works very well with mortality.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that any practice around, the, 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 uh, around Buddhism really is to do with mitigating suffering. A bodhisattva path, um, that you see your suffering and you see yourself in others, and that you have um, that a g- beautiful human pursuit would be the mitigation of your own suffering and others around you. Well, that's different language, but it, that's explaining palliative care right there. That's what the field is really concerted around doing. So there are all these overlays which work very, very nicely and the, and buddhism doesn't demand faith doesn't demand that i call myself a buddhist to be in line with
0: right um, right and what what, do you, what do you say you say you are um what's the language you use that you're a passionate agnostic or something
2: oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i sometimes say like a devout a agnostic a devout agnostic <laughs> that's right i like that
0: a lot but 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 it so it seems to me so I'm, i mean i'm curious about how you i i've found across the years um, I think when physicians talk about think about religion and spirituality um, it 's you know in terms of what they see and what they have to work with uh, mm-hmm. it 's very concrete it 's about it 's about the communities people have around them um, mm-hmm. i mean like and f- so for and for you it seems to me um, well it seems to me that in in Buddhism and also in in your the way you 've not just done this as a doctor but lived with it. There's this real honoring of the interwovenness of um, the sensory and the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, is, would, I, I'm, just, I'm curious about how you think about uh, – how you've come to think about how you would define like what spirituality is in, a, in, in terms mm-hmm. of whatever you take seriously about that in other people's lives or, or in
2: your own mm-hmm. life. Yeah, you know that word has has given me heartburn before. Yeah,
0: I, I know. Well, use another word. It doesn't have to be that word. What are well? Yeah.
2: No, and I, 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 you know, for me, I, I find a lot of. I mean, existentialism. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I draw heavily from in my own thinking, and but I, I have also, I mean, I think I've I've come to terms with with the word spirituality a little bit. Um, So a couple years ago, we as an organization at the board level, at Zen Hospice Project, at the board level, went through a really good exercise because it wasn't just me that wasn't espousing Buddhism per se, but our volunteer ranks, our staff, our nurses, um, and certainly most of our residents, the people we serve, are not Buddhist. So how do we reconcile these facts? And yet we are true to this root. So we basically set about... A little exercise for uh, defining spirituality. So, what does Zen Hospice Project mean when it's when it uses that word? Yeah, that was a great exercise, and it was a really fruitful one for us. A fruitful one for me because then I could now I could use this word when, and mean something by it. And so we basically said, well that we that we see impermanence as as a fact that we res, that that is a fact of life, and that we. Uh, through our version of spirituality, that we respond to impermanence with a few things. One is we um, prize the moment, what we have in front of us, that we work towards uh, a presence in the moment, and that we um, delight in interdependence. That we see that we are all connected by forces seen and unseen. Mm. And we acknowledge that and delight in that. And then the third piece, which for me is the real linchpin, um, is that we acknowledge and delight in mystery, in, in not knowing, in agnosticism in a way. Yeah. That we make room for the things that we don't understand. Uh, and I, that is my favorite of the three pieces, and for me, that is you know that distinguishes spirituality from existentialism, for example, for me. Um, and so now I can use that word and really mean something by it.
0: Hmm. You've you've also talked um, about time as such an important concept for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, say so say something about that.
2: Yeah, well, so existentialism. You yeah, know, I, mean, I mean, it kind of flows out of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being in time, right? So we are, <laughs> Heidegger and others have talked about how this is, our relationship to, to time is, is foundational for for the human experience. And that makes sense to me. Why? Because we have this weird facility to imagine the future and remember the past. And right there, that sets us up to have some relationship to the clock. And we as conscious human beings, we know we die. And we therefore know our clock ends on some level. So time just seems foundational. Um, And I think a lot of the gymnastics that we do as human beings has to do with our relationship to the clock, our lack of a relationship to the clock. We squander time until it's too late, etc. So I, I sort of just looking for... I love looking for the the building blocks, the raw material, the the irreducibles. So, space and time are two components that are really that I want to work with. I want to feel, and I want to work with. Um, And watching the clock is, I think, a big part of my job as a palliative care and hospice doc. Hmm. Is uh, minding the clock with people. That's that's how I see a big chunk of my job.
0: Yeah, and and and. and I don't know somehow we I guess when you are dying you 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 have no choice or at least there's there's a particular urgency about facing that but aging is something we're all doing all the time and not necessarily (laughs) choosing to face it you you see somewhere you know you want to think about aging and dying as a process of crescendo through to the end
2: yeah well you know this is where it's this is where the aspirational and reconciling the aspirational with the realities on the ground is tricky. And mm-hmm. for my love of design and aesthetics, beauty, I have to be very careful that we don't set ourselves up to, for yet another thing to fail at. Yeah. So if we're not right. – you know, yeah. so it's tricky. But what I guess I want to do is partly that conversation – that that comment about – like I don't want to die of a lack of imagination. I don't want to have it, our systems predetermined that we fade out. I don't want mm-hmm. to have our systems designed and pre-de- predetermined that I peak in my life when I'm at most productive. I don't want the, so when there's ever a moment to design the context to to, to create the construct. I want to make sure we take that very, very seriously and don 't accidentally predetermine misery that doesn 't necessarily need to be there uh-huh. so that 's really what i 'm calling for we can 't all experience aging and dying as a crescendo, but if we in, if we make space for that possibility uh, then it 's much more likely to happen and I do think from some as as you as your body ceases to be your best friend is this painless agent that takes you all over the planet. Um, as your mind may fade, there's always something, whether it's a sense of smell or touch or a thought. There, you, until you, There's something living in you until you are dead. And one of the sort of <laughs> conceptual things, it sounds kind of silly, but just I love saying this to people, to students. Like, you know, dying people are living. You know, yeah, we talk about right. the dying as though there's some other species over in the corner. We are the dying. Right. And seeing ourselves in that mix is very fruitful in a number of ways. But it also allows us to see dying as a part of, of living. And therefore, we can design that as an experience. Um, you know, for me, it gets very interesting to define death. Like what is death to me? You know, there's like a, there's a legal definition of that. Like I cease to have any cardiovascular function and my brain no longer talks to my body or whatever, you know, there's sort of clinical ways so that my doctor and my lawyer can pronounce me dead. But when am I, for my own purposes, when am I dead? When is it, when am I really done with this life? I don't know. We'll see as I get closer to it. But from where I sit, I'm very, at this point, very clear when I can no longer sense anything, whenever I can, when I can no longer take in the world around me in any way, then I'm, I'm dead. And that brings me back to this life of the senses and the immediacy of the senses. And the one thing I know is that the body dies, this body dies.
4: Right.
2: And this body is just a big sack of sensors. So, (laughs) uh, you know, so that's, that's the big loop for you right there.
0: Yeah. I've seen um, times that people wrote about you and they've used this language of wounded healer kind of as a headline. I wonder what you mm-hmm. think of that language. What it, do you identify with that? Do you like it?
2: I like the archetype. I like mm-hmm. the construct of the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes way back. There's this, this Asclepian tradition in, in medicine and in Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, and what I love about it is that... In this silly notion that's you know, of last century, where you know the doctor's way up here and the patient's way down there, and the doctor has a special knowledge and skill, and the patient has none. Yeah, the doctor you know, that has that so dynamics. much
0: power, right? The doctor's yeah. godlike figure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's just so okay. silly. And part and parcel why it's so silly is it implies that that doctor isn't also a patient, isn't also a human being, doesn't also <laughs> suffer, doesn't also get sick. So, yeah, so I love the wounded healer archetype for, for um, you know, for correcting that, for uh, upending that. the um, Wounded healer, you know, you, you learn, you're, in part you learn your craft from working on yourself.
4: Hmm.
2: Anything that allows us to see ourselves as providers, as healers, that allows us to see ourselves in our patients and vice versa is okay by me. Very fruitful, very useful stuff from a self-care point of view for us burned-out clinicians. Mm. But from the patient experience as well, then there's two human beings working things through. Uh, there's a side-by-side dynamic versus a vertical dynamic.
4: Yeah.
2: So it's- I love all of that. I mean, if, to, but I, you know, I'm okay with being called a wounded healer as long as everybody, uh, <laughs> as long as everyone's welcome to that phrase.
0: Um, as long as I know you're right, I, okay, yeah. It, you know what I mean? As long as we all can – that can describe any of us who are yeah. t- trying to rise to it. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean you've been talking about this All, all – we've talked about this all the way through the conversation um, about this – the matter of disability and, you know, I, I want to just sort of read something you wrote Um, because I, I feel like this is very fluid also, how we're thinking about disability, what we're calling it. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in your lifetime, um, in our lifetime, this has been very fluid. So you wrote, "Back in 1990, I was treated as a Frankenstein figure or a Christ figure." And it was. Or may, I'm not sure if you wrote that. Or, this or said this. Do you, do you know where I'm talking about? Does this ring? Yeah,
2: I've, I still use that language. Did you? Re- did I still you re- describe any, that? So, so back in
0: 1990, I was treated as a Frankenstein figure or a Christ figure, and it was ridiculous at either extreme. Some sometimes I got congratulated for going to the bathroom. Then somewhere mm-hmm. along the way, amputees seemed to bust out, and a handful went out and did extraordinary things, competing in Ironman triathlons. And the expectations change. If I didn't climb Mount Everest, I had failed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I still own that. Those words. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. They're
0: I mean, relevant. you know, language. And I, again, I'm thinking about the aesthetic. You know, sometimes in, when people write about you, they use the language of they describe you as a triple amputee, which is it. You mm-hmm. know, technically true, but to me, it's just such. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really dis- describe you. It's very antiseptic language. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know how to – so I'm I'm curious about how you think about, you know, even the language of disability, um, but also how we're working with that and struggling with it.
2: Mm. So, yeah, this is where, you know, really disability and chronic illness was my way into hospice and palliative care, much more uh, than death per se, by the way. but you know, disability—it's—it points us. You know, a big theme for me back in as an undergraduate in my senior thesis a subcurrent was was my frustration with language, that I watched myself and others confuse our constructs for meant to sort of make reality digestible, like we would confuse our constructs with the reality they were trying to point to, that words can point to things. I know words have their own life as well, but I, I, I still struggle with how much potency words have. Mm-hmm. Um, like what are words and,
0: that you struggle with?
2: Well, just the whole, I mean, well, let's just start with you asked about disability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm okay with it, but the, what I, what was not discussed is, well, compared to what? What's the frame of reference? What's the dis? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. yeah. So that that's implied. I mean, we can step back and discuss it, and I love when we, when people do. But otherwise, you just accept on face disability that you are less. You know, that it's yeah. something pathological happening, right? But compared to what? So I you know this this the relevance uh, uh, of the relativism, excuse me the relativism of language and the f- idea of words as signposts as imperfect yeah. uh, reproductions of the reality they 're trying to point to I, I just need I just want that to be acknowledged whenever i 'm in a serious conversation that words are sort of sort of the best we have, but they 're so flawed yeah uh, i just that just need that to be acknowledged somewhere
0: i mean it's kind of back to that idea that we 're all carrying around whatever our forms of suffering and struggle are, and some of them okay. show on the outside, and those we call <laughs> disability kind of.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Yeah, so, right, again, wounded healer, disabled, yeah. If everyone considers themselves disabled, I'm all for it, mm-hmm. same thing. You know, it's like, I remember when I would go, I haven't done this in years, but I would go to, people would invite me to come speak to their classroom, schools, often in high schools. Or when kids would approach me in a, in a park or something, say, you know, invariably, the same way, well, hey, don't you miss having two hands? You know, some version of that question would come up.
4: Yeah.
2: Or two feet or whatever. And I would say, well, you know, sure, yes, I do. I really miss having two hands. Oh boy, do I miss having two hands. I mean, what a treat. I, you can keep the feet, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'd love. Yeah. I, I mean, hands are remarkable, um, and sure, I do miss having two hands. But I would say to these kids, "Yeah, well, don't you miss having three? You know, they're <laughs> like, what? "What?" They just look at me kind of funny, and I don't know how many of them ever. I don't know if that that retort ever did any good for any child. But the point was, well, like this is my reality. Yeah, having one hand is my is this is my complete and total reality. It's not a half a reality. Um, and I don't see too many two handers ruining the fact that they don't have three hands. And yet it's basically the same re- relationship to something you can't control.
3: Right.
0: You've talked about love and joy and great hope as experiences of dying when it's done well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you would, you know, what does hope, what does great hope mean? at the end of life, as you've experienced hope at the end of life?
2: Mm, hope is such a funny thing. It's such a squirrely thing. Um, we can do damage with hope, too. Mm. It's a powerful thing.
4: Mm.
2: You know, if you ask, in a lot of the data around why some physicians uh, don't share the full truth of a prognosis with their patients, and invariably, invariably you'll hear some version of, well because I don't want to take away their hope. And they know that hope is what gets them out of bed in the morning and wills them to try the next therapy or whatever it is. Hope is a very potent thing. But in my training in palliative care, I learned, you know, whenever I hear that word, whenever I hear the phrase, I hope for, uh, I'm trained now to ask, to inquire, well, hope for what? That it's a that it too is a relative uh, phenomenon, yeah. and that needs to be contextualized, and is much more fluid and malleable than things than, than we than we in healthcare often give it credit for. Or we humans give it credit for. It seems to be like a monolith. Either you have hope or you don't. <laughs> the the truth is we can ho- we can change what we hope for. And you watch in palliative care, for example, in hospice, that sort of medicine is done well. When these informed, skilled conversations play out, out, you'll hear providers work with the person's hope but redirect it. So when I ask someone who's facing the end of their life, you know, if I'm trying to help them understand that time is short, you know, I will talk about what they hope for in their, in their life. And if I hear them say, well, I hope to live another 30 years, but I know they've got, you know, three weeks. Well, there's a big red flag for me to say, you know what, man, what if that doesn't happen? Then what might you hope for? You know, what, if time is shorter than that, what do you, what, what's, what's at the essence of your hope? And invariably, or well, not invariably, but very often you can get folks to a place where they say, well, gosh, given that reality, what I really hope for is to get to my daughter's graduation. You know, and then I say, OK, well, there's a goal we can work with, you know. And if someone says to me, well, I hope to live forever. Well, then I call that a miracle. And I say, well, let's hope for miracles together. Okay. You know, yeah. it's just I, I'm, there's a lot to say about this word hope. It's, it's something that, that there's a lot to work with there. But back to answer your question, when time is short, when people are facing the end of life that does is not necessarily not necessarily a hopeless endeavor. They may hope to have one more piece of pizza. Mm-hmm. Or they may hope to see that last episode of a show they love. But it it can be realistic and it can pull people along so that they are actually able to play themselves all the way out. Mm-hmm. And that's that living until your final breath thing.
0: It's interesting to me. Um, you work with death as this normal thing, this practical reality, something we're all – we're all dying, right? That's another mm-hmm. reason the – the physician is a patient too, right? <laughs> We're all dying. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. Um, but you you seem to hold it together um, with this enduring kind of reverence. You know, I would say reverence or honoring also that the the mystery of death itself. Um,
3: mm.
0: um, have you do you feel like you've do you feel like you understand or you know that you reckon differently with death as part of your life? Differently, because of this life you've been leading, is it less of a mystery?
2: You know, I. Th- it's a great question. There, there's a history in my field of of some of some spectac- spectacularly difficult deaths of people who worked in hospice. I think the admonition to us is us meaning those of us who work in this field, whether a volunteer or a physician or nurse, or whatever, is you don't seduce yourself into thinking that you know death, that you understand, I got it now. You know, I've I've been through, I've been around this block a million times with folks. I got it. So when it's my time I'm gonna be fine. That is really dangerous. That's like jinxing yourself. Um, you know some of this is knowable. And and for example, you know, teasing out dying and the implied suffering you know, dying is different from death. You know, mm-hmm. and, and teasing. And most of us are afraid of dying mm-hmm. because we it implies suffering. And when you get down to it, that's what most people are worried about—the dying rather so, than the
0: death, than being.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: So, so there's a lot I have learned that will help me suffer less. Can help me help others suffer less in that dying process. But I do not pretend to know or understand death per se. And part of my love of uh, And part of what I do, the reverence that you point to is, again, back to this mystery, this thing that I don't understand that's much larger than myself and that what happens after I die, I don't know. And boy, isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> so, so part of my work and I think for a night, you know, when we talk to students is, yeah, get get familiarise yourself with the concept of death and certainly with the concept of dying, but don't seduce yourself into thinking that you totally know it because otherwise you're going to find yourself standing at your horizon one day and you're going to be really extra shocked to learn that you're terrified. When you just assumed you wouldn't be, hmm. so I just I, so it's always it's just a it's no, easy you just make the a little bit of space. It, yeah. That's the mystery yeah. too, right? So just yeah. you just got to protect a little bit of space for all that you don't know.
3: Hmm.
0: So just you know, my last question: I'm, you know, you've 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 had uh, you've had an extraordinary life. You a lot has happened to you. You've you've taken a lot, and you've 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 you've, you've, you've you know this great. Uh, Accident early in your life, the kind of redesign of your life and the career you've had, and now working with people, and in some ways you could talk about what you do is help people, you know, design, uh, compose, you know, their their Mm -hmm. dying, the end of their lives. Um, what, Mm -hmm. What do you? How would you just start? This is a huge question, but how would you just start to think about, you know, what all of this is teaching you about what it means to be human? and I, and i think that another way to ask that is you know how you carry all of this into the way you spend your days your life
1: mm-hmm. yeah
2: it's a hot question and it's a, it's an ever present one um i think you know i it's interesting it, i'm in conversations like ours which is so remarkable to find myself in this chair and talking with you And, you know, I'm 44, and I look back, and by most measures, I have had a pretty extraordinary life. Um, And at the same time, uh, one of the most adaptive skills I've picked up over the years is really is, is, you know, when you all of a sudden become a triple amputee or anything like that, you're sent a bunch of signals that you're different now from people around you. And if you stop there, you really can really hurt yourself. And you get treated special right and specially, and that has its own seduction too uh, and pity you know you know, get stuff from pity and it 's really one of the one of the great graveyards in all in this in in this in traversing all this is if you really if you for me i guess if, if I were to really yield to this idea that oh yeah i 'm different mm-hmm. than those around me and just leave it at that, I would have just in inserted a wedge between myself and everyone around me that ultimately would not serve me. We are social creatures. And one of the most important things I've ever done was to hit on this idea of seeing variations um, on themes. So sure, my body's different in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, my life is different. But ultimately, I see them as variations on themes. And that allows me to acknowledge what's what's relatively unique in my life, but also to see myself as just like anybody else yeah. in a very truthful and real way, not just made up. So I, I don't know exactly why I went down that path when you asked me your question. but that is that's, So that's an ever-present theme for me, variations on themes, um, and, 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 and finding uh, myself part of a larger whole that everyone is part of. That's taken a sort of diligence because the world sends me a lot of signals that maybe if I weren't careful, I could run the other way. Mm. So uh, that's part of my answer to your question. But, you know, this idea, I I struggle with this. I'm a very busy person, like so many of us, stupidly busy. Here I have, I have so many, from my own experiences, but I, I have all what I call these vicarious deathbed experiences all the time. I'm around people who are yeah, dying. yeah, And... I, of all people, know that time is precious. Don't squander it doing things you don't care about. You don't, don't give it away too cheaply. Blah, blah, blah. Spend less time at work, more time with family, whatever it may be. <laughs> <you know. Yeah. laughs> you know, I, I have no excuse to forget that <laughs> zip, right? And yet I find myself incredibly and increasingly busy, Sometimes out on limbs doing things that I don't necessarily want to do or even believe in on some level. And there's a great – there's some real moral distress in that. I think that's a real theme in my field. I don't – I have not heard people describe it as such. But I think that's part of how we burn out is you have these lessons but you have – we find ourselves still unable to actualize some of these lessons so it's a hot question for me right now, Chris. I got to figure out. I got to constantly retool myself uh, and rejigger how I spend my time. I'm aware that I have too many friendships that have gone fallow. I'm aware that I spend too little time with my parents. Uh, and other examples. So I got to. I got to. I got to myself. Uh, but you know what? Again.
0: What you're just what you're just describing. I mean that. That there, you have a consciousness about, you know, what did you, what did you say that, we, you know, what we know, we, we know what we want and actually what we should do and what would be good for mm-hmm. us and we have t- trouble aligning mm-hmm. reality with that. I mean, that is, that is the human condition. That's, that's the nub of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you are, you're working with that.
2: I am working with that. You're darn tooting. I'm working with that. And, that, and, and, and I have – and what a, what a delight uh, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. What I love about my work is that the personal and professional are so incredibly entwined. And for any of us in hospice and palliative care, it's not like you're one way at work and another way at home. Yeah. There's an excuse to learn from your work and live your work in a very different way and be affected by your work in a very different way and for your f- work to be affected by your personal life. So I love all of that. But, you know, you're also pointing to as I, get, as I get frustrated with how I'm spending my time sometimes or not spending my time, not treating it with the preciousness I know it deserves. Not designing
0: your time. Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: that's right. And this yeah. is ultimately I'm landing back and this is where it is. And this is a creative pursuit, yeah. one that takes trim sales which need trimming all the time. And yeah. seeing this as a creative as creative work that's never done is is great. It's beautiful and I'd like to land there. It's probably a good stopping point. Yeah. And I would also add back to your original question about my experience as a young person with religion and for me Episcopalian and Christianity. Uh, you know, the golden rule and forgiveness, these are some of my favorite f- foundational themes for me in my life. And so all that we just described, even if I can't honor every minute of every day in this most precious way, well, ultimately, it's just another thing I get to forgive in myself and to keep trying tomorrow.
0: Well, um, this has just been beautiful. I'm so happy to know that you're out there. I'm so glad we were finally able to make this work. Um, Thank -hmm. you so much.
2: Thank you, Krista. I feel like an old friend uh, <laughs> to meet you in person one day. You know, thank yeah, you so, I do so too.
0: We'll this. make that happen. Maybe we'll just yeah. force Courtney to make that happen. Um, that and sounds we'll, great. We'll let you know what's happening with this, and um, you know, you'll 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 get lots of advance, and, and you know, maybe there will be some questions we have. But I'm very excited, um, and thank you again so much.
2: Thank you, Krista. And okay. yeah, let us know how yeah. we can f- help in any Absolutely.
0: way. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Yeah.
2: Bye-bye.